Hello, everyone. Welcome to America Daps, the climate change podcast. The head of the World Bank is warning that climate change will lead to violent conflict over shortages of food. Welcome and to America Daps, the Secretary climate change Chuck podcast. This podcast is all about climate change, but more specifically about how America is going to adapt to climate change. We're going to talk to scientists, planners, policymakers, and anyone who has an interest in the subject. And we actually hope to have a little bit of fun along the way. On today's podcast, we're talking with Dr. Molly Cross with the Wildlife Conservation Society. We're going to cover such topics as adaptation funding, conservation planning, and how to communicate this issue more effectively. And we'll briefly talk with Tim Watkins again no on our adaptation roundtable. Stick around. The world is looking to the United States, to us, to lead. This is the only planet we've got. Welcome back, everyone, to the America Adapts podcast. Today, we have a fantastic show. We have Dr. Molly Cross from the Wildlife Conservation Society on. Molly is one of the national experts on adaptation, and I feel very lucky to have her on the show. A little bit of background on Molly. She's been at WCS for about eight years. She got her PhD at University of California, Berkeley, and she also got her undergrad degree at Brown University. Very impressive, Molly. Very impressive. So, Molly, I don't know if there's anything you want to say additionally about your background before we kind of jump into this conversation. No, thanks so much for having me on today. And now I look forward to talking about our work on climate change adaptation, work that you and I have done together over the years, but also other work that I've been involved in. Excellent. And so, you know, I just want to jump right into adaptation. It's such an exciting topic that our, <laughs> the listeners just love this topic. And so I'm going to put you on the spot right off the bat here. Okay, we've talked before about how you explain what adaptation is. So let's say you're driving down the highway and you come up to a toll and -hmm. you're sitting there about to pay the toll. And there's this lovely young woman working at the toll booth and she's making chit chat with you, which is a bit unusual. (laughs) And then she's like, oh, where are you going? And for some reason, you just blurt out, oh, I'm going to this climate change adaptation workshop. And then she says, oh, that's interesting. What is climate change adaptation? And so you've got to do a quick elevator speech here. You've got an 18-wheeler right behind you. (laughs) The pressure is on. Right. You've got to do this quick, but you can't be rude and just say none of your business and drive away. What would you say to that young woman? Mm -hmm. I would say that climate change adaptation is recognizing that humans are influencing the climate system in a way that is going to change the climate. And we need to proactively prepare for and plan for how we're going to cope with those changes in climate. And think it means thinking about how climate change might impact ourselves or things we care about, our livelihoods, or in my case, fish and wildlife and ecosystems, and how we're going to try to help those things we care about prepare for and, and respond to climate change. Okay. That'll work. You know, I don't want to necessarily grade <laughs> this, but, you know, maybe wrap, wrap it around with what she does. You know, she's a toll booth operator. How do you make adaptation relevant to her? And I think that one, that would have been a stretch. I get it. Mm-hmm. That would have been okay. a stretch. But okay. That, you got to work that into the elevator speech. And so just think about that, all right, okay. for, for future, because that could happen, you know? Yeah, impacts of climate change on toll booth operators. It's definitely a category I have not yet had a chance to think about, but it is a good challenge. 
let's say you're visiting the Keys and you're driving over some of those bridges and, you know, you can tell her that she has to elevate her, her toll booth by That's right. feet. So That's th- right. There's ways of doing this, Molly. And, you know, let's just think about these things. That's why I always love talking with you, Doug, because you <laughs> think creatively about how I talk about my work. I appreciate that. Great. Okay. On to other things. Molly, I was doing a little bit of digging on your background before getting ready for this uh, podcast. And so <laughs> I did not know this and I should have known this. And, you know, I'm actually going to name this episode after this is that Molly did a TED Ed talk. And the title of her talk was, and correct me if I get it a little bit wrong, is Getting Excited About Climate Change. And I watched the presentation, but I don't know. Why, again, did you use that as your title? Because it's typically not something, you know, you would associate in a positive manner. Exactly. And that was certainly part of my intent in picking that title was to be a bit provocative. You can't necessarily tell from the way Doug just read the title, but I believe on my title slide for my TEDx talk, it had an exclamation point and a question mark after that statement, getting excited about climate change. And it was intended to be thought provoking because again, as you just said, climate change is not something that a lot of people would say they feel excited about. You know, the the title stemmed from my own experiences where when I talked to people, you know, in my family or at parties, and they say, you know, oh, you work on climate change, like, isn't that really depressing? And I always sort of pause at that and say, well, yes, there's a lot of bad news about climate change. But I'm super excited about my work. And so in preparing for that TEDx talk, I spent a lot of time thinking about like, why do I feel so excited to work on climate change? And You know, for me, a lot of it is because I work on adaptation. So adaptation, again, is thinking about how we prepare for and cope with and respond to and continue to thrive even as climate changes. It's focusing more on the solution side in terms of how we prepare. And so rather than just kind of working on climate change impact science, which I've done some of in my past, I'm more focused on the, well, what are we going to do about it? And it's more proactive. It's more of a problem solving mentality. And that's the piece I try to stay focused on because then I can be more energized to try to tackle this challenging problem rather than just sitting around and soaking in and reading about and thinking about the negative impacts. So did you get a sense from the audience or did you talk to anyone afterwards that they got what you were saying that did you get a lot of questions? Yeah, you know, it was interesting and I got some interesting reactions to the talk. And in a lot of ways, I felt like I was trying to walk a pretty fine line and I'm not convinced if I got that, ex- you know, on that exact line the way I wanted to be, because part of what I wanted to talk about in that presentation is that one of the reasons why I think climate change is very, you know, is very depressing for a lot of people or why it gets people down is because it's change. And we all have, you know, I mean, a lot of us can have problems dealing with change. Change is not always easy. Doesn't mean it's always bad, but it definitely isn't always easy. And so I was trying to convey the sense that one of the reasons why we get, I think, really depressed about climate change is that climate change is going to change. From a conservation standpoint, we're used to saying, well, this wildlife species lives in this place. You know, Yellowstone National Park has bison and elk and wolves. But if the climate changes in a way where we no longer have some of those species and we have new species coming into Yellowstone National Park, you know, that to a lot of people is bad or it's, you know, not a good thing. It's a negative outcome. And so I wanted to kind of unpack that a little bit and get people to think about change as not necessarily all bad. But that's a fine line to trying to say that, well, we should just like what climate change is going to do to the places and things we care about. 
And that's not necessarily what I'm saying either. I'm trying to get people to think about that change in a more nuanced way and say, well, some aspects of that change, maybe we can get excited about and we can embrace and see not as a negative thing, but there'll be other aspects of change that we aren't willing to accept and that we will want to either fight against or maybe try to shape in some way that's more desirable. You know, is trying to kind of play with this concept of change and how we emotionally think about change and recognize that systems around us are changing all the time. So we can't think of them as really static. But I also, you know, didn't want to end up with people thinking, oh, well, climate change is going to be just fine and we can learn to love it because that's that's also not necessarily the message I was trying to convey. So I think when I talked to some folks in the audience after that presentation, I got a few comments that made me worried that, oh, you know, maybe maybe the change isn't going to be that bad. And I was like, well... You know, I'm not sure that's exactly what I'm trying to say, but at least it was thought provoking for people. Well, I think what stood out for me, and I don't think we should initially go over the presentation here. Um, if people want to <laughs> see it, it's just search for Molly Cross and Ted Ed, and it'll be the first thing that pops up. It's like an 11 minute video. It's really good. Molly does a great job. But, you know, there was a couple slides where it talked about, you know, what is change? Is it good or bad? And I think you had a yes or no, but you were making the point about the spectrum. And I think to me, that really resonated. Like, you live in yeah. the world of, of grays, not black and white. So that, to me, was a really good take home message. So, yeah, yeah. Well, that that was, yeah, a big nugget I was trying to convey. Um, yeah, if you search for TEDx Bozeman and Molly Cross, it'll pop. Well, you know, I actually haven't chatted with many people who have done TED-Ed talks. I think, you know, I want to dive into that just a little bit. You know, I watched the video, and to be honest, I thought, <laughs> did you listen to it recently? I've watched it, you know, a couple times over the last couple of years. They introduce it as the TED-Ed Bozeman talk, and it's they're basically using, like, rawhide music at the beginning of that. Is that a typical yeah. Montana thing? Well, it, yeah, so it was, you know, it was the local Bozeman TEDx session. It was grounded in the place. But it theme that year was something like about pioneers. Oh, okay. So I think that might have played into it. I'm just like, all right, you know, they're stereotyping Montana here. I'm hearing, you know, I'm just thinking Clint Eastwood the whole time. Uh, <laughs> but again, so, some questions about TED-Ed. I mean, I'm, I'm fascinated. I went to a TED-Ed at National Geographic and it's so choreographed. I mean, it, that's why they're so popular is because you, you know, you get consistent message. But so did you really had, I mean, did you adhere to some really strict rules? I mean, what was that process like? Yeah, it was, it was a real intensive process. Definitely the most intensive process I've gone through and preparing presentations. And I give a lot of presentations, probably dozens every year to varying audiences of varying sizes. So basically I applied. So I wrote a proposal and said, this is what I want to talk about. And then they reviewed the proposals and selected them. Mine was one of the ones selected. And then you prepare an initial, you know, initial draft of your presentation and you give it and present it in front of a small panel of organizers for the TEDx session. And they are people who have been kind of carefully selected that are really have a good eye towards these kinds of presentations and have done some coaching in public speaking settings. So you give it a draft sort of initial run presentation and then they kind of go go through it in excruciating detail, slide by slide, and you know, critiquing not only the content of the slides, the oh, visuals man. of the slides, the the way you talk, the way you stand, the the stories, you know, encouraging wow. storytelling. And and so so that sounds kind of rough, but actually, it's a really fantastic kind of back and forth process. I valued it. I I appreciate that kind of constructive feedback. And they really encouraged storytelling, connecting with the audience, you know, and then had some probably somewhat standard tips on you need some kind of either story or question to the audience or some connection point with the audience 
you know, every three to five minutes or maybe even more frequent than that. You know, you kind of know those things. I know those things from general public speaking tips, but to really create a talk that's embracing all of those concepts is, is it was even harder than, than I thought it would be. But, yeah. but, I, and I practiced a lot. And so, you know, I ended up feeling like my, my presentation was, well, I don't know. I don't know how it came across to somebody who isn't me looking at myself, give a talk, but it felt it, it was pretty polished. I practiced it a lot. So <laughs> it was not off the cuff kind of thing. No, no. <laughs> well, listen, some feedback from me. I thought it was very good. You were great. I've seen you present before. You. I mean, it was different in the sense that you were definitely polished. And so I never give the same, same presentation twice. And so it'd be very difficult to use that model, but it, it was good. And you did what you had to do. But, you know, it's funny, too, because, you know, they had some editing going on with the video and you even had it look like some moments for humor. And it looked like you built that into your presentation. You're just like, OK, there might be a guffaw here. And there were some pauses. And yeah, yeah, yeah. so that yeah. must be a little bit weird as you're sort of designing the whole thing. It, it is. It is. But also, again, a good challenge. I appreciated it, well, but I worked hard and that was the biggest audience I'd ever presented to is over 500 people. Oh, wow. And you know, you're up on the stage, you got one of those little earphone headphones, you know, that you can't quite see, but you feel really awkward wearing and you're at a big spotlight on you. And it was quite a rush. Well, so if you go over, what do the TED people do to you? I've always wondered because it's like they're militant about that time timing. I mean, what do they say? Well, if you go over on time. I probably was slightly over. I was probably about 30 seconds over okay. what, I was, what I was supposed to be. They Again, they kind of work with you on that. It wasn't like we were all given the exact same time limit. So uh, I think they budget that in. It worked. I enjoyed it. But <laughs> Thank I, you. I do recommend take another look at it. The last five seconds of it, you look at your expression and, you know, you, you definitely have a weird expression on your face. And so I uh, am like a deer in headlights. Right? Yes, exactly. I say like, thank you. I like and I run off the stage. <laughs> so, OK, well, that, that, that's interesting. I, I hadn't really talked in depth to anyone who's done a TED Ed talk. So um, congrats on that. I'm sure it was very exciting <laughs> for folks who don't know Molly, which is probably most of you who are listening to this. Molly is a national leader in adaptation. We, we really didn't go into much detail of her, her background, but you can't really discuss an adaptation workshop, especially focusing on conservation, natural resources, where Molly probably hasn't been involved to some degree. I, I see her name pop up everywhere. And so she goes to these things. She leads. She's a scientist. She's at the thick of all this. And I, I'm sure it's probably pretty exciting for you, Molly, to be involved with an emerging issue. You know, adaptation, it really hasn't taken off. You know, it's only probably been in the last five to eight years. I mean, do you really feel that you're in the thick of it or is it kind of growing? I mean, what's your impression? Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's very exciting, you know, in a lot of ways. And I feel really fortunate that I've been able to do this work within a network of colleagues and partners within my organization, as well as outside my organization that are also working on this issue, because I do think it is an evolving field. It's a new field. A lot of us are gaining comfort in talking about what climate adaptation means and obviously for me especially within the conservation world and so in a lot of ways we've been sort of figuring it out as we go there isn't a roadmap there isn't a lot of real established thinking on this so it's been very exciting to be helping to try to establish some of that thinking but it's also been challenging at times and i think what has benefited my work has been Again, being part of a network of colleagues that are working on these issues, because I'll do my work and I'll start to formulate ideas on, you know, how I think we should talk about change, how I think, you know, we might need to rethink our conservation goals and actions. 
And I'll sort of start to have, form those thoughts, but I'll wonder whether, you know, am I, am I way out there? Am I, well, you know, on the right track? Again, I don't think there's a right or wrong answer here, but I'll want to know, am I really far out there or are other people thinking this way too? And so I've been able to work with folks like yourself, Doug, and other colleagues at other conservation groups, at state and federal conservation and natural resource management agencies. And we talk a lot and we talk about, well, I'm thinking about this. What do you think about that idea? And we kind of bounce ideas off each other. We learn from each other. And in that way, it's been a really exciting field to be a part of. Okay, so you look at conservation across the board, federal, state, NGO, and let's just focus on North America. If you had to give a grade to where people are when it comes to adaptation planning, just quickly, (laughs) what what grade would you give? Oh, my gosh. Well, I mean, if you look at – I mean, there are people getting A's out there. Uh, No, 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 no. I'm talking the whole But as a community – What's the average grade of the conservation community in, I could probably speak most to the U.S.? I don't know. We're probably, a, I'd give it a C. I'm a, I'm a generous grader, <laughs> you know, maybe a B. <laughs> Great inflation. I'm known for being a soft grader. <laughs> but, but that said, I think there's a lot of room for improvement. You know, I guess one of my hesitations in being critical there is that I don't think people are, it's not that they're, again, an established right or wrong thing for them to be doing and they're choosing choosing to do the wrong thing, that they're doing a bad job, they're not oversleeping and missing their classes and not getting the notes afterwards. This is a new arena and it's and it's not straightforward. It's not easy. And so I'm hesitant to be a critical grader because I don't blame people for still struggling to figure out how do we incorporate climate change into our work. But that said, I think there's a lot of places where we um, should be thinking about climate change where we're maybe not yet. You just don't have that cutthroat nature in you. No, like, you, just, uh, you know, I, I think if I had to do it, it was knee jerk, not a qualified answer. I'd say D solid D not an F. I mean, I think we've come a long way, but you get outside our orbits of people. And I think that's part of the problem. You're like, Oh, yeah. everybody's talking about climate. It's like, <laughs> you know, they're not, you know, yeah. from the local government level, even conservation groups, you have, staff up and down the food chain that, you know, they're not even thinking about these things at all. And like, you know, you've been involved with NCTC and you get people that take these courses. That's a National Conservation Training Center. And they're just scratching the surface on even federal employees getting trained on these things. And so I think we probably have a lot more long ways to go. So. Yeah, great. that's true. But, you know, one of the one of the things that I do feel like has changed. And like you said, you know, you, you certainly wouldn't give it an F. We've made a lot of progress is that people are more accepting of the fact that climate mm-hmm. change is an issue that they they get that they should care about it and i think the real struggle is knowing how do i care about it how do i bring it into my work and again that's that's the arena that we work in that we've been working in for a long time and and trying to get people to see where they go after acknowledging that it's a problem you know so at least I'm glad that I don't have to spend my time convincing people that climate change is something that they should have on their radar. Some people might still argue that it's not as important as real pressing threats like land conversion and overharvesting of, you know, overhunting of animals or whatever the, the kind of other more traditional conservation threats are all around us. But at least I don't have to spend my time arguing that climate change. Generally, I don't have to spend very much of my time arguing that climate change is something that should at least be on their radar. Well, I think, you know, it's just the opportunity of the situation. Like all those other issues are still, I think, in some ways they are much worse than climate change. But get adaptation is sort of this once 
in a generation opportunity to kind of look at conservation in a different way. And if you can get yeah. the broader society to actually care more about, con- I mean, conservation is just a tiny little niche. I think most people want to do the right thing, but it, you know, it, it's hard to really impact things. And I think adaptation is, if we do it right, it's a, there's a, there's a pathway to actually getting large conservation outcomes. That, you know, if we spend, it's just, yeah. We don't. Have, we have a window here. I, you know, I, we've probably talked about it before. Five, ten, fifteen years of this window of thinking about natural resources and adaptation. So, and I think what what we need to focus on, because again, it is hard in some places and with some conservation practitioners to get them to, rec- you know, to again to see climate change as an important issue relative to the other challenges that they're that they may be facing and feel like are more pressing. I think that we we can also think about climate change as, you know, if we don't consider climate change, we may be investing in actions that aren't going to be effective in the long run or that won't be as effective as they could be. So it's not so much saying ignore habitat loss as a threat and focus instead on climate change. It's saying how can we develop the smartest possible and most proactive possible strategies for dealing with habitat loss that also take into account the fact that the landscape and climate is going to be changing. You know, I think that might be an argument that's, that will resonate more with people than you need to think about climate change as a really important threat, as a sort of standalone thing. You know, speaking of tunnel vision, so I'm, I'm curious to get your impression, like we've been working on this, it, it seems like a lifetime, but you know, even like you're considered a veteran if you've been doing this for like six or eight years, you're <laughs> someone like Laura Hansen, who's been doing it since the nineties. I can't even yeah. imagine like what the conversation she used to have, but it just seems like even in the last two, three, four years, especially yeah. as the federal government's ramped up, you're getting more of the private sector, some of the local governments, and there's this concept of adaptation and resilience. And you probably know where I'm going with this, but I'm just curious your thoughts of like even private consultants, you know, this, the resilience approach to planning. I mean, do you see some pitfalls to, to what's happening? I, I think it's very encouraging that more people are thinking about this, but it just seemed like such a quick pivot to like hiring resilience officers across the country. You know, it's just the, what it's your resilience mm-hmm. strategy. And so yeah. you've been up to your neck in conservation and natural resource planning, and it's a different beast. And so do you have any concerns that as sort of like this broader society approach to climate change? I think it might be symptomatic of what we were just talking about before. People get that climate change is a problem and it matters to them. I think in some sectors, they're more keenly aware of how it matters to them because they're experiencing really big coastal storms and flooding events. They're seeing some of the inundation from sea level rise. They, you know, so some of those impacts are particularly keenly felt by people. And so they're especially willing to say, okay, this is a problem. And so I think there's still a lot of uncertainty or lack of confidence in knowing, well, what do we do about it? How do we prepare for these impacts? So I think the kind of gut reaction to talk about, well, we're going to build resilience of these systems to climate change is in some ways it's a phrase that sounds like we're doing something, but we're not really still not really sure what that means and what that looks like. When I hear the term resilience, and I know that it means different things to different people, I think more about trying to keep a system more or less the same. A resilient system is one that maybe, you know, it might, it might get disturbed. It might change a little bit, but it 
kind of returns back to what it was before and how quickly it returns back to what it was before and, and how little it changes from what it was before are both signs of a sort of very resilient system. And, and the reason why I get a little nervous about that term is because of what we were talking about earlier. I think there's going to be significant changes that we can't prevent from happening and that are going to fundamentally change in, in the case of the sector we talk about conservation are going to change where wildlife finds suitable climate and habitat on the landscape. They're going to change ecosystems and their functions in dramatic ways. And so I worry that talking about, well, we are going to do, therefore build the resilience of these ecosystems to climate change, that we have a mental picture of the system still saying, staying more or less like it does today. And I just don't think that's a realistic outcome for a lot of ecosystems that are very likely to be exposed to big changes in climate. You know, I don't go to the same meetings that you go to, and I worry that we all play on our own separate playgrounds. And I'm just curious, do you feel like you're crossing paths with, let's say, you know, these large environmental consultancies are really ramping up on climate change. Do you feel like you're in meetings with them and you ever had a kind of confrontational moment? Do you think they're approaching things different? Are you doing that or are you just in your circle? So I, I have not really interacted with some of these sort of larger environmental consulting groups. The, so the context that I think about this a lot is when there's an opportunity for public comment on, say, a federal government plan and there was or or some legislation uh or or maybe it's not a public comment but there's opportunities where the the conservation groups are trying to get together to offer suggested language to a federal agency that's trying to develop leg uh, legislation and so when i see those policies all anchored on this building resilience language it definitely raises kind of questions in me of should i be how hard should i be pushing against that you know is that setting us up for false expectations about what we can realistically accomplish in some ecosystems in some places given the magnitude of future climate change that is possible and so i've found myself just struggling a little bit with how hard to push against that language uh, versus you know maybe it's just a semantics thing and it you know it's just a word and it's not going to change the philosophical approach that we might be able to embrace in our conservation work that might be more oriented towards facilitating change rather than maintaining the persistence of things that are already there. Well, you know, so I struggle with it a little bit to know how hard to push back on it. But I will say that in our trainings that we do for conservation practitioners to train them in how to think about climate adaptation in their work, we often spend, um, uh, you know, make a point of talking about that term resilience and encouraging them to not just lean on it, but to unpack what they mean by it and say how much of what kinds of changes are they willing to accept in their conservation goals and outcomes and, and how much are they trying to, to push against. Well, I think it's important for people like you to start picking fights with these people. <laughs> you know, just even if it's I may not be the right personality type for that, Doug, but I'll take that. I'll take that under consideration next time I'm in that situation. Oh, <laughs> Try to puff myself up a little bit more. The conservation community is going to get steamrolled by the, you, it's almost popped up overnight. You just look in the last two or three years and just the resilience grants and all these things. It's just, it's really, it's happened so quickly. And so we won't, Maybe we could chat about it, but the whole idea of maladaptation, how you adapt poorly to climate change, that's the big issue that makes me nervous. Um, but, you know, I, I want to say on the, the issue of adaptation and resilience is 
I'd mentioned Laura Hansen. You know, she leads this group, EcoAdapt, and they were, I think, with some other groups, they started this national adaptation forum, which is this, you know, every two years, a big conference, obviously, focusing on adaptation. And um, I think that's a great thing. And I think Laura's gone out of her way to really try to attract folks outside the natural resource crowd. But, you know, I still sense, you know, that their next one is next year in Minnesota, but they better be careful. You know, next thing you know, it's just going to be another conservation conference. And uh, Meaning that we're just talking to other people of like minds and we're not getting out there and talking with others who may be either not thinking about these issues at all or thinking about them in ways that we might want to redirect. Well, right. And so like groups like yours will show up, the National Adaptation Forum, a whole suite of small environmental organizations. But then you have small local governments and they might have heard of it, but, you know, they might go to planning conferences instead, whereas I think the National Adaptation Forum really is an opportunity. And I think that from my conversations with Laura is that that's where she'd like to go to create that sort of mixing. But I just the first couple, I think if you really did sort of a survey, I mean, it mainly was conservation groups. And I think that's to the credit of the conservation community that they've had their head around adaptation a lot longer, you know, you snap your fingers and there's going to just be a much larger community and we, we could just be in our own little pocket. So, yeah, well, I think, I mean, I, I think you have to be maybe both um, realistic or think carefully about what the intent is of those conferences. I know that the National Adaptation Forum is an incredibly important opportunity for, for the building of the field of adaptation. So, you know, I think, I think at times we need to be building the field of adaptation, talking with each other, comparing notes on how we're doing this work. Cause again, it's a new field and we're all learning from each other. And so I think the forum obviously, and yeah, obviously fills that role. I think the other question that you're posing, which is how do we create those opportunities for talking with people that we don't normally talk to? I mean, that's a, that's a real challenge. I'm not sure creating a conference that's all about adaptation is necessarily, I don't know how you design it in a way that gets at that. Maybe more important is making sure that all of us are deploying out to those other kinds of conferences that are not explicitly about adaptation, where those audience, where the audiences are are new to thinking about it and trying to plug into those conferences. And that might be, I don't know if that's any easier than trying to bring people who aren't thinking about adaptation into the National Adaptation Forum. So I guess you could go and try to go in both directions and try to have both of those things happening, but they're certainly challenging. Well, there's societies that are forming, the American Society of Adaptation Professionals, and then ACCO, which is, I think, the Association of Climate Change Officers. And they're organizing. It's uh, the field's organizing. That's, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, who knows how effective these groups are, but it's just that's uh, uh, hopefully a positive sign that it's it's a maturing field. Trying to build the field. And then, you know, I think there's been a huge focus on trainings, Uh, trainings in basic climate change education and information trainings and how do we do adaptation planning and bring climate change thinking into uh, conservation work, but also probably I assume and that those are the trainings I'm familiar with. I assume there are trainings in other sectors as well. You know, that's all about trying to broaden and, and broaden the base of people who are thinking about these issues. Oh, I agree. Training, training. Next five, mm-hmm. 10, 20 years. Just get people thinking about it. Yeah. So Molly, I want to pivot to work you do with Wildlife Conservation Society and mm-hmm. 
one of the most exciting things that your organization has been doing is this thing called the Adaptation Fund. You know, one of the first groups, and I, I, you can give some more background, but I think you, you get mm-hmm. the funding through the Doris Duke Foundation, but it's, it's a pot of money to fund strictly adaptation projects. And, you know, you're seeing more of those grants, more money that's becoming available to do that. But you guys were there early on, and I think you're trying to define what it really is an adaptation project. And that's what, sort of what I want to talk about now, because that's, that's a tough thing. Yeah. But I, you want to give a little bit more background on the fund? The Wildlife Conservation Society's Climate Adaptation Fund is, as you, as you indicated, it's a regrant program. So we get funding from the Doris Duke Charitable Foundation on the order of about $2 million per year to regrant out to conservation organizations that are implementing on-the-ground projects aimed at improving sort of adaptation opportunities for wildlife and ecosystems in the United States. We are trying to fill a couple of really specific niches. The main goal of the program has, from its start, been to catalyze the implementation of on-the-ground adaptation action. Um, And that was in part in reaction to seeing across the, you know, across the conservation community, there's a lot of science on climate change, how the climate is changing and what the impacts will be to wildlife and to ecosystems. There's a growing investment in planning, which is basically looking at that science and asking questions about how and in what ways should we change or adjust or shift our conservation goals and actions so we can be more successful in the long run given climate change. So there's a lot of science, there's a lot of planning, but at the time when the grant program started up um, being focused exclusively on climate adaptation in 2011, very few examples of people actually out on the ground implementing climate adaptation projects that incorporated the best available science and that used some sort of structured planning process. So the goal of the grant program was to catalyze the -the on-the-ground implementation of adaptation action. And we have invested over, let's see, so since 2011, 12, 13, 14, and 15, over $10 million in conservation projects across the United States, different geographies, different ecosystem types. So you just, I mean, is the grant process open anytime soon or did you just close that? I forgot. We're uh, partway through the 2016 grant call for proposals. So we are reviewing full proposals right now and we'll be making decisions in the fall about 2016. And we have an agreement with the Doris Duke Charitable Foundation that covers sort of two-year time periods. So we are at the end of a two-year agreement with them, and we are sort of in the process of figuring out if we're going to be able to continue the grant program subsequent years. So if uh, anyone's listening who's interested in, in learning more about the grant program, stay tuned. My advice to potential people submitting a proposal is start thinking about it now. Don't mm-hmm. wait for the call for proposals. Yeah. They're complicated <laughs> projects. And if you really start thinking about it, and I think you, you have some good resources on your website, like existing projects to kind of get a, a flavor of it. And uh, no bitterness on my part. I mean, I've applied for two grants <laughs> and I didn't get any of them. I, I mean, so <laughs> I, I, I wonder what you really are guys are doing over there. What the hell are you trying to accomplish? <laughs> If you're you know, rejecting. we set, we we acknowledge we set a high bar, and <laughs> and that has been that was a conscious decision, and in part we are hoping to be able to utilize our our grant program and the incentive of the grant dollars to encourage really rigorous climate change adaptation planning, and so we again use the grant program to encourage that kind of best 
practices in adaptation planning. We also, um, as part of the grant program, offer trainings in how to do adaptation planning. So we recognize that not every organization, every conservation organization in the United States is already doing adaptation planning or, or knows how to do it or, or knows what's involved in adaptation planning. So we've been trying to do some trainings that, you know, help explain what it is that we are encouraging groups to do, the kind of planning we would like to see so that we can kind of see that planning and know that a project that's being proposed has really taken climate change seriously and really taken climate change into account as they've designed their on-the-ground projects. Molly, that's just sad. You don't have to defend yourself here. So, (laughs) (laughs) you know, I I submitted those grants when I was in Florida. They were these killer sea level rise grants. And you guys are awarding these grants to like these boring Midwestern states that probably (laughs) have less biodiversity in the entire state than Florida has in in like a tree. And so super exciting projects in the Midwest. (laughs) I'm very excited about. I'm kidding. You know, these are great projects. I don't know (laughs) the dirty laundry that went into making those decisions when I submitted it, but we don't need to dwell on that. (laughs) So again, the the adaptation fund is there and you want to dig a little bit into it. You know, I've had these conversations with you and Darren Long, who's the the fund uh, director. uh, What's the position called? It's just, he's the Mm -hmm. director of the program, right? Yep. And so, again, you've, you've mentioned that money's not there for research or for planning. And you, I would argue, and you're not going to change things, but I still think we're pretty early days in this field about what is adaptation. And, you know, I guess what I want to ask you, too, is that we talked about this maybe three or four years ago. But, you know, there's a famous quote from Justice Stuart Potter and referring to pornography in a famous Supreme Court case that he knows it when he sees it. And so this has been used a lot in adaptation. Do you know it when you see it? Because people struggle. What really is an adaptation project? And if you go onto the site and see the different projects that they funded that, you know, what really makes this? And I think you guys have really tried to dissect it. Do you feel more confident today mm-hmm. answering that question? Mm-hmm. The way I answer the question, I mean, there, there is for the early years of the grant program, for the early years of my work in climate adaptation, there was an element of it, it was hard to define. And there was a sort of aspect of, well, yeah, we'll know it when we see it. And we had sort of some reactions to different proposals that were in front of us and some resonated more strongly than others. And we've tried to be as clear and you know, quantitative and structured in our evaluation process to get at, okay, so what is it about these projects that resonate differently with us? Why do we think one is stronger than the other? And how do we, you know, try to really clearly articulate that back to the applicants so that they have a sense for what we're looking for? And it's hard because for me, adaptation is a lot about a person's thought process. I don't think there's any magical list of actions that are adaptation actions or you know, some contrary list that of actions that are not adaptation actions. It's not about the, the, the actions themselves. In my mind, adaptation is about the thought process that you go through to decide what actions are appropriate and necessary to take to achieve what kinds of conservation goals. It's a process of looking at the best available science and asking yourself some really structured questions about how climate change could influence our ability to achieve our conservation goals. Will it help us achieve our goals or will it hinder our ability to achieve our goals? Does it change the actions that we're taking? Will the actions we've been taking in the past be effective given climate change? Or do we need to change something about those actions so that they will be more effective in the face of climate change? So a lot of times, you know, for me, it's like having seen somebody look at the best available science, 
consider some of those challenging questions about whether and if so how they should do their conservation work any differently given that climate information and those potential impacts. And then saying, therefore, we feel like these actions are the most important ones to take to achieve our goals as climate changes. And so what's been challenging with the grant program is to say, how do you word questions on an application in a way that really helps people illustrate that thought process? Because I can't just, you can't just say to me, oh, well, I'm going to you know, build a seawall, or I'm going to plant these trees in this area, or I'm going to manipulate water flows in this way. That doesn't in and of itself tell me if what you're doing is a climate adaptation project or not. I want to know more about the thought process you went through to decide that those actions are important to meeting your goal. It's important that, you know, and I think you guys are probably getting pretty good at you. You sniff out the buzzwords. They throw in Mm -hmm. a vulnerability assessment or something like that. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, this is a climate change project. And so you you guys have probably Mm -hmm. gotten much better. But I'm hoping that the lessons that you learned through this process, you know, you look at what you ultimately your bigger goal with this because, you know, you have a limited amount of money, but you want to impact landscape level conservation. Like, how are you sharing this? I mean, other, you want some structure to how the broader community is mm-hmm. doing. Are you are you making inroads to communicate what you're doing? Well, we we try to invest in that kind of sharing and communications in two different ways. We actually try to to encourage that kind of work from our grantees directly. So we encourage projects and are in fact are more likely to fund a project that is not only implementing some critical conservation actions on the ground that are grounded in climate science and information. But we also strongly encourage, and in fact, you know, it's becoming more and more of a requirement that projects that come into our grant program also have activities related to trying to broaden the adoption and sort of scaling up the practices that they're demonstrating or that they're implementing through our grant monies. We have a number of different ways and and types of communications and outreach um, projects that we're funding right now that our actual grantees are in charge of doing. So they tend to be more locally based. A project will be sharing information about sort of new forest management practices with other forest managers in and around the area where they work in that region. So those are some of the ways we're trying to do kind of more at that ground level, encourage that kind of sharing and learning. But then as an organization, WCS is trying to take advantage of this portfolio of over 50 projects that we've funded to date and to do more to tell the stories of the work that's being done and that's embedded in those projects and in that portfolio of projects and to try to share um, kind of to a larger audience some of those examples and work. So that's that's something that I, I spend a lot of my time working on um, within the grant program is trying to catalog and capture those stories and figure out, and we're just starting to work on, can share those stories to a broader audience. I think part of the problem here is as you described what you're trying to do and what adaptation really is like there's the risk of overthinking this issue and i Mm -hmm. guess to go back to that toll booth operator i'm sure it makes your skin crawl but like if you had to describe the uniqueness of the adaptation fund to like a politician or you know even a funder that really just doesn't want to get in the weeds it's probably have a lot i mean we've talked about some how you're communicating these different projects but like Uh getting that down to two or three bullet points it's tough but you got to do it yeah so the first report that i'm working on that's trying to again tell some of the stories from the portfolio of projects is looking at okay here are some specific climate impact related problems that face conservation and here are some tangible here are a couple of sound bites about some tangible on the ground projects that are implementing strategies or solutions to trying to deal with that problem so we can kind of call out recognizable problems like sea level rise 
and increasing, increasing intensity of coastal storms and storm surges. And then have, you know, we've got five or six sort of short paragraphs that are describing specific strategies for dealing with that problem. And examples, again, of a conservation group implementing that strategy. So it's not conceptual. It's actual groups on the ground implementing those actions on, you know, in real places. We're, you know, trying to find ways to deliver that in a kind of punchy and more accessible way. Well, you know, I was reading the criteria for the the adaptation fund, and this is what I do for my free time right now. I'm getting ready to talk to you, and I had a brainstorm, and maybe you guys are already on top of this, but the money that Doris Duke gives obviously is very generous, but it's a drop in the bucket of the need yeah. out there. You know, you and yeah. grant levels are fifty thousand to two hundred fifty thousand. That's mowing someone's backyard out west. It's barely going to cover anything, and so I was thinking of a model. And are are you familiar with Kiva and the whole microloan model? Not not intimately, no. Right. So what people do is that they give little pulses of money. And so it's for third world countries where you, you learn about they want to open a little bakery or something. And so you give these micro loans and the expectation is that they pay it back. And so mm-hmm. it's more of a feel good. You're helping really poor people that aren't going to get access to regular banks. And you guys came up with some sort of interface because you think of all the projects that you get, all these adaptation projects that you just can't fund. And I'm sure some are legitimate, but you just didn't have the money for it. But you guys are coming up with the model of what would be a legitimate project sort of that filter because Doris Duke is never going to give you enough money, but you guys want to impact at the landscape scale. You've got to come up with some sort of interface or platform where you're doing that. And it's just not information sharing. You know, I'm probably just going out really in the weeds here about this whole idea of a microloan, but I'm just thinking it's just the legitimacy of the adaptation project. If you are somehow feeding into that and then, you know, you've got even individuals Mm -hmm. who would donate. Hey, Kiva is a potential model for you. We'll take a look at that for sure. No, I mean, it is. I mean, no, no, (laughs) no, we think a lot about not just the additional practice on the ground that might come from some of the communications and outreach work that either our grantees are implementing or that we are, but also the leveraged dollars. So there are a couple of examples, especially where um, grantees have been incredibly successful in taking the seed money from our grant program, which they already have to have some amount of match for. So they have to have some funding already from other funders on the table in order to get a grant from us. And so they take those sort of seed sources of money and they've been able to leverage at times, you know, maybe multi-million dollars, multiple millions of dollars in additional work is going to be really critical in the face of climate change. So, you know, not every grantee has has um, invested in activities to try to, to leverage that kind of resources, but it is happening. And so we are definitely tracking those examples really closely to try to learn from them ourselves to see if we can take some of those same kinds of ideas for, and, and you know, again, leverage more investment in, in adaptation work around the U.S., but also beyond. You are in the process of telling the stories of all these projects that you're funded. And I and I hope it a lot of it's on you, but I hope you kind of you're getting additional resources. Not people that I don't know if you even go to Hollywood, you know, just <laughs> people think, that do this stuff for a living right. and do it really well. <laughs> but even, you know, communication officers, I think yeah. they get stuck in a rut. I mean, what you're doing here is exciting stuff and it shouldn't be all on. You know how it is in, in the fields that we work in. It's like, all right, you're going to now do something that you just don't have a skill set for. And you, you're you're. It's it's like, to me, you're holding this stash of really interesting information, but you n- have to pitch it the right way. So Yeah, no, I, th- I think we're sitting on a gold mine of information. I think we have only, we've just barely scratched the surface. What I'm planning on, you know, the, and the, the sort of activities that I have to tell those stories are, that are already in the pipeline is, again, just 
just slightly scratching that surface even more. I think there's a ton that could be done with the material um, that's embedded in all these really great projects that people are taking action on the grounds with. So I, I think you're right. I think there's a lot that we need to be trying to do. And, and I'd love to, I mean, at, at some level, we'd love to entice others to be interested in these stories as well. So Molly, we probably need to wrap up pretty soon, but I just want to throw out some quick questions at you. Just you're an expert in adaptation. What are a few of your favorite groups working on climate change adaptation right now besides your organization? <laughs> You know, one of the one of the projects that that we fund that's like these are all our children and I should probably not play favorites, but one that I love to talk about and that I find really exciting in part because they're working at that leading edge of questions about how do we encompass and, and manage change and in some cases embrace and facilitate change is some work that's underway by the Nature Conservancy's Minnesota office, in particular a woman named Meredith Cornett, you might want to consider her for a future podcast if okay. you can track her down. Okay. She uh, and her team at the Nature Conservancy and the partners that they work with in northern Minnesota, we funded a, a, an initial project with them that's looking at, these are forests that are harvested every few years. There are trees that are taken out and there are active plantings that happen after those harvests. And in the past, they had a certain list of tree species that they would replant after a harvesting activity with an eye towards thinking about the, the economic gains that come from those forests and the timber that's extracted, but also the wildlife habitat that, that they provide to forest mammals and birds. And so now they're looking at that list of species, those trees that they plant after a harvest, a little differently. And they're looking at what species are going to be best suited to future climate conditions. And they're starting to bring new, different tree species into that mix that they suspect will be more likely to benefit from future climate conditions. So that's an example that I find really interesting and exciting where they are changing what they're doing and they are changing that they are looking at how they can help that ecosystem weather the climate changes and transition. They want it to remain a forest, but they're willing to accept that it might be different tree species than it is today. But they're also looking at places, other places on the landscape where they may have really good chances of trying to keep their boreal forests looking like boreal forests and resisting changes. So it's just a really thoughtful and sophisticated way of looking at the larger landscape and thinking about where do we invest in facilitating change and where do we maybe make investments in trying to build resilience in, a, in the true sense of the term, where we're trying to keep systems looking similar to what they look like today and being very thoughtful, using the best available science and, and being willing to go out on a limb and experiment a bit with some of their conservation strategies. That's one example of a project that I think is, is, is really exciting. Any other groups, just like if people are Googling this, other couple, just, you know, throw out a couple organizations. I just yeah, I was going to say, well, I think all of the grantees that we're funding, I and mean, the Nature Conservancy, we've probably given the greatest number of grants to various T, uh, TNC, the Nature Conservancy chapters around the United States. There's other more local or regional groups like the Huron River Watershed Council doing some great work in Michigan. Sky Island Alliance organization down working in Arizona in those sort of mountaintops that are essentially like islands within the sea of much more arid ecosystems. They've done some really fantastic and sophisticated climate adaptation planning and collaborative uh, adaptation, taking, you know, working with Forest Service and many diverse partners to implement actions on the ground. Groups like American Rivers and Trout Unlimited, some of these national organizations, National Wildlife Federation, they're definitely on the leading edge edge of these issues. But again, I want to emphasize there are a lot of smaller and local groups that are doing this work too. 
the Greater Yellowstone Coalition in where I live outside of Bozeman, Montana, doing some great work. For our Madison, Wisconsin listeners, if you want to meet Molly, she will be there. Is this next week? You're going to be uh, in Madison? Yes, I will be at the uh, conference center in Madison on, um, what is that, July uh, 18, 19, and 20 at the Society for Conservation Biology Conference. So what's the name of your, you're doing a panel, just really quickly, what's the name of your panel? So if you're really going to just rope people in. Yeah, it's about going beyond resilience looking at adaptation and conservation and in systems, especially ecosystems that are likely to change dramatically and thinking about transformative change. Very cool. And sometimes I think they have a lot of those presentations online, even after the fact, if people want to kind of dig into those things. I want to end with one final question, and then I want to give you the sort of last words for the day, but it's a hypothetical question. Okay. President Trump takes office in late January. Oh, God. And he's looking to hire a national climate change adaptation coordinator or czar more appropriately. And he hears about you and he offers <laughs> you the job. Do you take it? Uh, you know, I would have to seriously consider it. Okay, okay. You know, I think that I have not had an opportunity like you, like you said earlier, we need to be talking with people that maybe aren't always already on our side and seeing the world the way we do and the importance of proactively preparing for climate change. So maybe that would be a great opportunity to be thrust in that world of trying to kind of bring people over to taking this issue more seriously or seeing it in different ways. Um, that said, I imagine it would be a very, very challenging job. <laughs> people can just walk away from this conversation saying you're basically endorsing Donald Trump. <laughs> All right, Definitely I got it. Not. <laughs> so, uh, listen, you'll you'll work for him. You'll take a nice whatever SCS salary. Oh, well, um, no, no, no. I said I would have to seriously consider oh, it. Okay, all right. <laughs> so Molly, I we've talked for a while. We've covered a lot of great ground. Thank you so much. I'm hoping folks listen to this and they just learn the the breadth of what adaptation is. But I want to give you the last opportunity to kind of say something and then I'll, I'll wrap it up. But uh, any closing words to, to folks? No, you know, my, my main thing I try to tell people is, you know, when there's a lot of angst about, well, what do I do to prepare for climate change? I get that it's a problem. What do I do? And maybe a little anxious about getting started in, in adaptation planning and thinking about it. And uh, one, of, one of my big messages is just do it. Just get started. Just start looking at the science, reading about it, thinking about what it means for your ability to achieve your goals and reach out, reach out to climate scientists, reach out to adaptation planning experts. Don't try to do this alone, but I encourage people just to get started in thinking about what climate change might mean for their work and look at some of the ways that people are taking proactive strategies to try to cope with those impacts because they might find some inspiration. They might find some ideas that they could bring to their own systems. Okay, great. Great message. And thank you so much, Molly, for, for joining America DAPS, the climate change podcast today. Thanks for having me. And up next, we have not today, but on the next podcast, we have Bob Glazer for the, with the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission. And we will be talking about climate change adaptation planning in the state of Florida. But again, thanks for being with us. And for those who want more information, we're going to have additional resources related to what Molly does on the America DAPS dot org website and i'll have links to some of the things that molly's doing to the adaptation fund and so i'll even have some of the resources that you'd mentioned with the tnc in minnesota so people can kind of dig into those things so again thank you everyone and have a great day
Hi everyone, we're back. This is Doug Parsons, and we are doing our adaptation roundtable. And I've got Tim Watkins with me again. Tim, how you doing? Hey Doug, I'm doing all right. It's good to be back on. Well, you know, you've sort of been not in communication with me. Have you been somewhere? <laughs> Indeed, I was uh, overseas in Scotland with my family for a, an extended family wedding. It was a good time. So, how long were you over there? Uh, about ten days. Oh, wow. Well, that's very exciting. So did you see any sort of climate change stuff while you were over there? Oh, absolutely. In fact, um, we stayed with relatives in East Kilbride, which is just outside of Glasgow. And just on the horizon, right behind their neighborhood, is a set of wind turbines. And they're cranking out, you know, I don't know how, how many megawatts of power, uh, but they were very present. And as we traveled around the country, actually, we saw all sorts of signs of renewable energy very much installed and in play and up and running. That, that was pretty encouraging. We went out to Skye, the Isle of Skye, for a couple days and went out to the West Coast. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful sea cliffs and a castle and a lighthouse. Looked out, uh, and you could see the Outer Hebrides Islands uh, in the distance there on the horizon. And sure enough, they had some wind turbines there way off on the horizon, cranking away. So that, uh, that gave me a lot of encouragement and hope. Well, it seems like Europe is really you know, jump into this. Um, they're not necessarily having the political issues that we have over here, so that's encouraging. And did you manage to strike up a conversation about any of this with any of the locals? About adaptation? No, not so much. But, you know, just casual conversation within the extended family. People were talking about, you know, climate change and adaptation and, and various efforts that governments were taking and policies that were in place just in everyday conversation it didn't seem out of the ordinary whatsoever it was like talking about you know taxes or budget or who's in office or you know what the what the horse race is of the day it's just casual everyday conversation well i saw a few of the facebook photos and every time i saw a photo i couldn't but help think of chevy chase and vacation european vacation I just you just had that vibe going on you know Four-person family, and I just, yeah, it's just the, the entire time I was thinking European vacation. Yeah, well, thanks for that. <laughs> well, speaking of politics, you know, what, what I wanted to bring up today was that something very exciting is going on in Cleveland, Ohio. Oh, what could it be? Yeah, what could it be? Well, the Rock and Roll <laughs> Hall of Fame. I hear they're, uh, you know, bringing in, um, let's see, uh, White Snake and Warrant. Very excited about that. <laughs> No, seriously. The Republican National Convention is happening. And so, you know, we don't typically get too political on this podcast, but climate change is obviously a big issue. And I'm just curious, have you been following it at all? I had read that they came up with a new climate platform. You know, they come up with a whole platform at these conventions and they actually address climate change. Have you heard what they talked about? Yeah, they want to basically undo everything that the Obama administration um, has set up with uh, clean power and, you know, adhering to the principles and achievements of the Paris Accords and, and all the rest. It's a, it's a complete retreat from the gains that have been made in the past few years. Well, what's even more discouraging is that I was reading it, and it's actually a retreat from where the Republicans were at in their 2008 platform. They compared yeah, the yeah. two platforms. <laughs> And they even talked about the need to do this. And, you know, the big one really is recognizing that humans are influencing the climate. And this platform steps away from that. That's yep. just crazy. 
Yeah. I'm not surprised, though, you know, if you look at the, um, the rhetoric coming out of the main candidate and just the people who are backing him. I think most of us saw this coming. That's pretty depressing. Um, you wonder how far they could go. You know, I guess if I'm not here to make predictions on the election, but if there's a President Trump, you know, there's all sorts of ways that they could, like you said, stop progress. But at the same time, I would hope that bureaucrats would do their best you know, defense to keep a lot of these things going, but maybe just switch the names around. Not call it adaptation, but call it conservation planning. And you know, there's ways of kind of dealing with these issues if you if you need to. So you know, what's interesting to me is I think I said this on our last conversation about how much um, you know America adapts is relevant because it really highlights kind of the innovation that Americans are very proud of, and I think rightly so. The the opportunity to be entrepreneurial and do great things and make money around climate change is really there. But here we have a party that's adopting a whole platform um, and wants to institute policy that would negate all of that. And the fact of the matter is that other countries, Scotland, uh, China, for example, really stand to completely eat our lunch, I think economically because they are accepting climate change and they're investing in solutions and will make enormous amounts of money. And I think if this country were to pass a carbon tax, which is what all economists from all you know ends of the political spectrum say is needed to have a clear market signal, you know, if we did that, just think of the incredible amounts of wealth that could be generated by having a well understood accepted predictable price on carbon and the opportunities that that would unleash for people to really truly be entrepreneurial uh, and innovative in solving some of these great problems but we have a party that doesn't want to do that and um, other countries will do it instead yeah so basically which now when they passed the cap and trade a lot of the money that they were going to generate through the cap and trade was actually going to be directed toward adaptation and it just spurred a tremendous amount of thinking on adaptation within the states and NGOs and it's just a, even the possibility of this money just created kind of a revolution and so it just goes to show how government can influence it and I'm a little concerned is that I, I hear that you know there's the Democratic Convention next week that a carbon tax isn't necessarily going to be on the Democratic platform I don't know if you've heard anything about that yeah, I've seen references, and I, there's just a lot of sort of tepid thinking about that anyway. Again, it's not, I, I don't think it's any big surprise. I'm, I find it profoundly disappointing that people are not willing to expend the political capital to really push that, though, and uh, I think we certainly have the need and the opportunity to do that, but it just means people have to take the risk to step up. And probably a presidential election season is not the best time to do that, but early in the next gener- uh, next administration, if it were uh, the Democrats, then I think that would hopefully be a really good time to do that. So perhaps this time next year. Well, it's only day three of the Republican convention, so anything's possible. Maybe Donald Trump will surprise us on Thursday night and just come out gangbusters and do something very progressive on climate change. Maybe. Well, we just have to wonder if that would be his own speech that he would be giving if he did that. Oh, nice. Good one. Excellent. <laughs> so, you know, Tim, that's it. That's all I wanted to talk about. Thanks for the update. I'm glad you made it back safely and look forward to the next time we talk. You're very welcome. Talk to you later, Doug. Thanks again for joining us on America Adapts. Don't forget, you can check out our website at americaadapts.org, or you can also like us on Facebook at that same address. My name again is Doug Parsons, and you can email me at americaadapts at gmail.com if you have ideas or you want to just give us some feedback on the shows. 
Thanks again, and we look forward to uh, talking to you next time.